He is risen. Hallelujah. Please be seated. Buckle in. We're going to do a lot here. A global coalition against God's people with a false prophet and a talking statue and sundry and various charms is the story of the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. There's a lot of overlap with the current world, leading a lot of people to say, oh my, we're in the end times. I'll just say real quickly, yep, we've been there a long time. It keeps repeating itself. Don't get too locked in to pinning the tail on one antichrist, but recognize indeed, everything Revelation has to say, it has to say to you about the times you're living in. Today, we're going to do three things with this massive book. We're going to address one of the major issues about the diversity of opinions at the end of the world. How's the world end? Christians say one, two, three, four different things. We're going to look at that briefly. We're going to then go to the Bible passages that that argument's about. We're going to go through that briefly. We're then going to jump from there into that letter from the church in Philadelphia in order to encourage ourselves to see what we learned about the millennium, that's that bit we're going to do first, uh, is something we can then rejoice in now and even put our feet down very solidly and walk forward as an individual, as a group, and so on. Uh, and then uh, finally, if we have the time, we'll see if I can get us there. Uh, we're going to zoom back around to the very end of the book, which we'll almost be at when we start this morning. The part right after it where we stop is the New Jerusalem. So I'm just going to try to read that to you uh, at, at the end here, leading up to the Lord's Supper, which if, if I'm able to pull this off with any modicum of, of uh, success, uh, this is just going to walk you into this table this morning in a very special way. Uh, I'm going to ask you to use this little note card in front of you, though, if you found that one, and to turn to the pages in the Bible a couple of times at least. You can get yourself started by finding uh, Revelation chapter 16. Uh, verse 17, and just kind of putting your finger there and then turning to this little note card. Uh, 1617 is on page 1037 of your pew Bible. So on, on the back of this note card uh, are, I'll show it to the camera for a sec, but I'm not going to hold it there the whole time. Um, you have uh, four different timelines showing you four different ways that various Christian groups, people who are Trinitarian, they believe in Father, Son, and Spirit, they, are, uh, they, uh, they believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, his kingdom, his reign, they baptize, they take communion. We may disagree about how those things and what those things mean, but Christians who have all those things in common with each other have four different stories about the end of the world. And because we like making things difficult, just like in the Old Testament, remember, you know, Josiah and Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin and Golic, it's hard to remember after a while. Well, so also, apparently, uh, in the New Testament era of Babel, we give things words that are very hard to remember, like dispensational premillennialism, right? Like, that's a, that's a mouthful right there. Um, and I don't know that I need you to try to remember that one. What I want you to remember is the word rapture. And if then you can tie the word rapture to that word pre-millennialism, and notice that on your chart, two of them are pre-millennialism, dispensational and historic. Both of them, it's about the rapture, okay? So you got this, this rapture idea out there. And then you have this third one on the list, 
post-millennialism, uh, which also does have the word rapture there, but they don't mean the same thing by that at all. And, and what that one's really about is more about how this world's going to look before Jesus comes back. When I come back, I'll explain that, okay? But post-millennialism's not common. You probably don't have any friends and neighbors who are post-millennials. Uh, maybe some Calvinist guys, if you hang out with the Reformed chaps who smoke pipes, perhaps, right? Um, but you really have to be highbrow to get post-millennial. Post and then you have also highbrow to talk about it, but Lutheran, okay? Ah, millennialism, right? Lutherans, we made sure we said exactly what we meant, even though no one else will understand it, right? Yeah. We're all millennialists. Of course we are. It, may, it makes exact sense. It means that there is no visible millennium with an end to it, uh, but that the thousand-year reign of Christ is a symbolic everlasting reality. Of course that's what amillennialism means, right? I mean, didn't you just know that when I said the word? And, and no. So, so how do we summarize our Lutheran position? Well, it, it comes back to what's this millennial thing, right? The millennium, what's that about? And the millennium is the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter uh, 19, 20, 21. All around there, but then zooming in on 20, which is where we're going to go in a moment, okay? So the thousand-year reign of Christ that John talks about, what is that? Where is that? When does it happen? All of the end-of-the-world fights are about this. So pre-millennialism believes that Jesus comes back before the millennium, before the thousand years. Post-millennialism believes that Jesus comes back after the thousand years. And again, as I kind of said a moment ago, ah, millennialism says we're in the thousand years. We're going to be in the thousand years forever. So you really have three views and then four when you add this dispensational thing to it. Okay, so... Um, the dispensational thing where that gets interesting is they've got more than one end of the world. They've got multiple ends of the world. They've got all sorts of stuff going on with the devil having to be made a scapegoat, some sort of thing. They've got things with demons actually as attacking mankind in an apocalypse. There's all sorts of like what you'd see in Hollywood. Whatever Hollywood has told you about the end of the world, it's kind of in the realm of this dispensational premillennial uh, juju. Um, and uh, again, I'm going to let you kind of make your choice a little as we look at the text this morning. But what they're going to say, though, is this. Jesus comes back, takes the Christians away. Then more Christians are made, and there's a thousand-year reign of Jesus here on earth with those new Christians. And then there's another battle, and then the resurrection of the dead. That's the general premillennial view, period, with lots of twists and turns and new spice thrown in, and I don't hold it, so I'm not going to get into it any more than that right now, okay? But just know most of your friends and neighbors have some version of that. Jesus comes back, takes the Christians. There's more time, struggle, tribulation, something, new Christians, thousand-year reign on earth, and then another end of the world, all right? Post-millennialism is a far more reasonable little piece. It's like this. Christianity is awesome. And so before the end of the world, there's going to be a reign of Christianity over the entire world for a thousand actual years, the culmination of which, the final days of which will be the descent and return of Jesus Christ. So that the thousand years preceding Jesus will be run by Christians who are filled with the Spirit, and everyone will know Jesus is coming back soon because it's working so well. Now again, you don't find many of these people, right? 
You probably haven't talked to many of these, but it's out there. And so it's on our chart because as Lutherans, we make sure we get every detail, right? Every detail. So do you need to worry about the post-millennials? Not so much. Maybe the, uh, the generational ones they're talking about in the news, but not so much with this. But that premillennial thing, again, that Jesus comes back, but it's not over yet. And there's another end of the world. That's this view that we're like, I don't think that's what the Bible says. Yeah. Although you'll see in Revelation 20 where we could almost get there. Okay. Now, again, we're just going to jump into Revelation 20 here using 16.7 to kind of build the structure to it. Uh, but with the assumption now that I'm going to teach you our view, which is that the millennium is a archetypal revelation of God's everlasting kingdom. And that, in fact, this is paired with another idea right there in the same text called the little season of Satan. And that if you can see that the millennium is the forever that God reigns and the little season of Satan is right now until this one ends and the new one begins, the whole text makes perfect sense. You got to look at it that way, right? The millennium is Christ's reign forever. The little season of Satan is the time between Christ's resurrection and Christ's return. It all makes sense. It all falls into place. Let's see if we can do it. So 16, 7, uh, 17, excuse me, uh, is just where the angel pours out the seventh bowl, okay? There's these three sevens and then seven uh, letters, so four sevens, that make up the entire book, right? The final seven is the bowls of incense. The final one happens uh, in 16.7, and this sets off the entire back end of the book, which has a couple of things happen. The next two chapters are about this harlot who's riding the beast, and the beast was a big deal before. Mark of the beast, beast out of the sea, beast out of the land, all that stuff, false prophets and whatnot, okay? So that's from before. Now, this beast is back, and then there's this prostitute, uh, Horks, excuse me, you know, uh, writing this thing, telling it what to do, and it gets utterly, utterly destroyed by Jesus. Jesus shows up on a white horse with a sword flaming out of his mouth and angel powers everywhere, and he just casts them all, frankly, um, in, into hell, right? But it's, it's the abyss is what it's called here. It's a chain of eternal darkness. Uh, that's all happening up and through chapter 19, right? Uh, and uh, let's see. From there then, uh, for the sake of time, uh, we're going to jump to chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. So, after there has been this battle in which the harlot, who is sort of the dragon riding the beast, is bound and chained in an abyss by God, here's what happens next, all right? So that was all just prelude to where we're going. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There's your millennium. It shows up, okay? He's bound for a thousand years. And we've already got this abyss concept taking place for the harlot. Here we have the dragon, the same person really, the devil, being bound by God's angel with God's power for this thousand years, okay? Uh, and he was thrown into the pit. It's sealed over him. He may not deceive the nations any longer. This is important then. 
What's the binding? The binding is that he may not deceive the nations. Who are the nations? Not countries. They're families and tribes and languages that are not Jewish. That's the nations. And what has the binding now is the devil's ability to deceive the nations. This is all about the New Testament. This is all about how it was kept inside Israel in the Old Testament. And now the devil can't stop it. And it's flooding out everywhere. There are Christians everywhere, not just in one place. That's the binding of Satan. The strong man's being pillaged by God now. Until it says the thousand years are ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Here's where you got to decide. Is this just a timeline? Is Revelation one timeline? And we're going to follow it. And so if we haven't got to some point yet, that that means the end of the world can't happen until more stuff happens. Better get busy building that second temple in Jerusalem. Sorry, me, third temple. Because that is what the premillennial dispensationalists will realize eventually is that Jesus can't come back till we get another temple because of the timeline approach to Revelation that leads to the world ending multiple times. And all these confusions. I, I promise not to go too much into that one today, but it's hard not to talk toward it because it's so common out there. So common out there. Um, a thousand years and the binding of Satan is so that God cannot deceive the nations. That means Christians who are not Jewish are now Christians and cannot be taken from God by the devil. But for a little while and behind all of these things, you can translate any after as behind. Behind all of these things, there's still a little season taking place. Uh, and that'll come back here in a moment. First, then, we get these thrones. Verse 4, I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who had authority to judge. I saw souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Uh, Short story, this is Christians. He saw Christians alive on earth. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Without going into debatable details, the first resurrection is your regeneration into the faith of Jesus Christ. It is to be born again by water and the Spirit, to be born from above. The first resurrection, right? So he sees all the people who haven't died yet, but are Christians, right? And they're reigning when? Right Now, the thousand years, Christ is already crowned. And, verse 6 then, blessed and holy is the one, that's you, that's you, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death, that's hell, has no power. The first death has power over you, you're still going to die. Second death, hell, no power. Why? You have the first resurrection. What's that? Trust in Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit in you. Over such, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ, a royal priesthood. Yeah? And they will reign with him for a thousand years. Just a thousand years? Forever. Ten is the number of completion. Three is the triune reality. So three tens, or ten cubed, ten times ten times ten, is the triune's perfect completion. You can't get better than a thousand in God's numbers. It's like, it's like the top, I mean, 7,000, 12,000, 144,000. It just kind of piles into more church numbers in the book of Revelation. But it's all about God's enduring realities. Right? Now, this little season of Satan, verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, oh, I'm sorry, I got a quibble. Ended. It's fine. It can be ended. The word means whole. Whole. 
complete. It doesn't mean over. It means filled. There's a real difference there. We, we had, as Americans, we're all chronology-based. Everything's start and stop, right? As opposed to be. So in any case, I think this is like as the thousand years are still going, but kind of behind, right? Uh, when the thousand years are ready for it, uh, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So now you either have Satan causing a war at the end of time to make the end of the world happen. That's the pre-mill view, right? Or you have a very deep study into the meaning of Ezekiel 38 and 39 as a paradigm of the book of Revelation's way of telling the story of the end of the world about how God's going to trap the devil once and for all and never let him out again, because that's what God does. And he's just telling that story one more way through a reference to Gog and Magog. We don't have time for Gog and Magog today. I wish we could. It's so good. Uh, But the idea here is big like this. God sees the devil. God says, I'm done with the devil. I'm going to put some bait out here. Devil can't resist it. Come and eat the bait, devil. Come and eat the bait. He comes and eats it, and devil's dead now. What's the bait? Body of Jesus. That's the bait. Put that thing in the grave, devil, see what happens. Yeah, oh, he couldn't resist. He put his fangs in deep, and he bit the poison that that undoes him for you again, Christian. And yet now behind the reality that we live in, he's still deceiving many people. He's out there deceiving many people. And they, like an army, march over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints, the beloved city. Do you feel surrounded, Christians? I'm not saying, oh, it's the end of the world. I'm saying this is normal that we see this happen, that unbelievers surround us and make us feel uncomfortable. And we should trust that fire will come down from heaven and consume them. It's the next line. Doesn't mean actual fire, but they're not going to be able to stop us. The devil who had deceived all of us, thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, and then we get into the great white throne judgment. It's so good. We're not going to have time there. We're going to go look at the church in Philadelphia. But key to this is that the millennial view is that Jesus is king now, and he's never going to not be king again. And no matter what else he has in store for us, uh, we're pretty sure it's just translation into a paradise of innocence and righteousness and blessedness. Or whatever else he has in store for us to teach us how we must suffer and be disciplined for his name until then, well, that's going to be fine. That's going to be good, even. It's going to be like an open door through which you can't not go. And that's why let's turn to Revelation chapter 3 here uh, for our our final uh, minutes this morning. Revelation 3, verse 7, where the letter to the church in Philadelphia is recorded. And there's all sorts of fun we could do about the history of how the church of Philadelphia came to be, the way we looked at Antioch, the way we looked at Berea, and all these things. There's a history of the church still being there. And then there's the word Philadelphia, which indeed came into English as part of the naming of cities. So you probably, maybe, I don't know, I was taught in grade school, Philadelphia means city of brotherly love, right? So there's this whole idea of Christianity built up in the word Philadelphia itself, actually. There's lots of stuff we can do. But I just want the letter to kind of reign over your heart now. 
And we looked at Laodicea last week. I said, okay, Christians hear warnings about repentance and we go, okay, we'll do it. Now, here's the other side. Christians hear promises about the church and they go, that's me too. That's me too. St. Paul, what Christ has to say to the church in Philadelphia, he has to say to the entire church of God in the entire world, and that means you right now today. And it is this, there is an open door before you that no one can shut. Here we go. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? We talked last week, that's probably the pastor, the angel, there's the pastor. Write this, remember there's a title for Jesus right away. Uh, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David. So three things there, and then the key of David is going to get more explanation. But holy, remember, that means set apart. Yeah, set apart, holy, unique, distinct. He's the only one like him. That's the point of God being holy. There is no other. Holy, holy, holy. Threefold holy, the number of God. There is no other. He's also the true one. I'm pretty sure that's the word amet or amen. He's the amen one. The amen guy. Like when he says, he doesn't need to say yes or no. He just says, and it is, right? His, his speaking is yes. That's what he does. Uh, Luther then goes with this and talks about, you know, well, what, what about when God says no? He says, well, that's God's alien work. That's because we're sinners. He's got to do that right now. But like God's personality is yes. Can I, God? Yes. Should I, God? Yes. How do I know, God? Because I made it. <laughs> you know, that's the world that we're supposed to be in. Sin gets in the way of all of this, but he, he remains the yes, right? And then this key of David, he's got the key, which allows him to open and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. There is history that ties the key of David very lightly to the, uh, the Davidic kingdom and the stewards who cared for the city of Jerusalem underneath uh, David's reign and David's family, right? So if you're the king, you don't have time to do all the work. You have somebody else take care of ordering the toilet paper, right? The steward's going to do that. Uh, and so the key of David was like the mark of the house of stewardship in the Old Testament. And Jesus is like, I got that now. I'm taking it back, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you unleash is unleashed. Whatever you bind is bound. So go forgive people. Right? The, the office of the keys and the preaching of the keys is all there in the key of David. He says, I've got it, and I'm going to give it to you. It's about his reign. Okay, going forward to Philadelphia. I know your works. You ever feel like God doesn't know what you're up to? You ever have that happen? Like, God, are you watching? Are you watching this? Like, are you, Do you see this? Do you not see what I'm trying to do? Have I not been honest? Have I not repented? Haven't I asked you to show me where I need to grow? So I, Are you watching, God? Maybe you don't. Maybe you never have those moments. Um, I have them often. Uh, and this phrase, I know your works, you know, you can get real Lutheran here and be like, uh oh, it's about grace versus works. Or you can be like, it just means I know you. I know you. I'm watching you. You ever have that moment where you're like, well, someone's watching me? You ever have that moment? You look around, there's nobody there. And you can be like, oh, it's angels. Well, yeah, sure, that too. But you know what? No, Jesus, in fact. All the time, every day, never alone. You never talk to yourself, ever. You only talk to Jesus and don't realize he's listening. That much, right? He's that aware. I know your works, he says. And then to this church who's like really struggling, actually. He says, look, I've set before you an open door. 
And the reason he says this is because they don't think it's there. They don't see it. They don't feel it. They feel like they're still struggling, probably like most Christians today in America, honestly, where we're like, what's happening? It's falling apart, right? And he says, I know you. And there's an open door before you that no one's able to shut, right? Well, Jesus is, but if Jesus opens the door, no one else gets to shut it. You look what he says next. I know you have little power. I know you don't have a lot of money. You're not really big. I mean, golly, we built this building out of like brick rather than stone and plaster rather than stone. You know, we're, we're small time potatoes. The, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, you can't even imagine. We're so small time potatoes. We, we, we walk and talk way bigger than we actually are. Jesus knows all this and that's actually fine. He doesn't care. He's not worried about the size of your organization, right? I know you have little, uh, I know that you have yet little power and yet you have, look what it says, kept my word. You've kept my word and not denied my name. Christ has died. Christ will come again. Are you praying the Psalms in the name of Jesus Christ yet with me? It will change the way you pray. Huh? Keep his name. Now, you don't have to say his name to keep his name. You can say the Lord and mean Jesus. That's fine too, right? But here again, God knows your prayers. He's watching. He's listening. He sees it all. And he says, look, uh, verse 9, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. That is, anybody who has ever said you're anything less than a son of the living God is on the last day going to have to say they're sorry for it. And you're either going to say, I forgive you, let's go play, or um, talk to Jesus, you know, because they don't get forgiveness because that's where they are. But he's going to make that happen. He's going to make that happen to your enemies. Huh? And so think then not of like, well, who do I not like, right? But think of those people that are doing wicked things with the money you pay taxes to them with. There are evident wicked things going on. Think about that here. And then Jesus knows all of this. He's going to make them come and acknowledge that they should have come to this church. They would have been better off, whatever they were doing, trying to save the world for abortion or whatever. Huh? They'd be a lot better off if they'd come and heard Christ. Huh? They'll bow down. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Notice that. That's a throwback to chapter 1. That Christianity is a form of patient endurance. And the more you just think about that, Christianity is a form of patient endurance. It'll, it'll help you understand why it hurts still. <laughs> uh, it still hurts. And it's really about holding the hurt. And then not using the hurt to hurt. But holding the hurt enough to, to share their pain. Right? That's the idea here, patient endurance. Um, because you pursue faith in Christ, though, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. To try those who dwell upon the earth. That's probably the Diocletian persecution uh, that he's referring to, probably. But I like this verse today. I really do. Because I'm, I'm still kind of convinced there's an hour of trial coming upon the world before Jesus comes back. I think there's a reckoning, or three, or 15. More than one. I think nations are going to rise and fall. And I think our nation is so arrogant and so evil that it can't possibly just keep doing what it's doing. And so I, I worry about that. And I pray about that a lot, actually. I pray for God to keep the lights on and to keep the refrigerator going and to keep the well pumping and these things. And maybe that's kind of crazy of me. But then again, like, no, I'm, I'm asking my God to provide my daily bread. 
And so when it says here that this promise to the weak church that holds his word is that he's gonna keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world, it doesn't mean that you're not gonna go through whatever happens in your neighborhood, but it does mean that you're there because he wants you to be there and it's good. It won't be a trial to you the way it's a trial to the rest of the world. It won't be to test you unto your damnation, but it will be to temper you unto your salvation. And that elective reality of your anointing in Christ that you have, baptized as a child of him, is so powerful and real that, again, you can inscribe this on your own heart and take it to be true that whatever trial God has in store for whatever evil men are around us, he's going to keep us from it. And maybe that means it just never hits our bodies, but maybe it means when it hits our bodies, it's so that we can see more souls believe what we believe. And we see that too. And it becomes the fuel that drives us. Huh? I am coming soon, he says in verse 11. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Notice the defensive nature of Christianity. Be aware, they're trying to take the words away from you. They're trying to take the story away from you. Hold the story. The one who conquers, how do you conquer? Hold the story every day. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. The end of this turns into all these wonderful promises. They're all, uh, I hope they're metaphors. I mean, if you take the Bible literally and you want to be a pillar in a temple someday, just kind of stuck there. You know, I, I, I don't know. But I love the idea of being bound into the habitation of God forever, right? The temple is where God's spirit inhabits. Now Christ's body is the temple. We are his body, right? So it's, it's just talk to show you how strong your Christianity is eternally, right? I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Never you shall go out of it, or you'll always be near God. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which we won't get to that text, but if you'd like to read chapter 21 to yourself later today, you can get more about the New Jerusalem. We'll just close again with this naming thing, right? Uh, that we're named now. We have identity now. We come from many tribes and peoples, languages and tongues, but we are all made one in the precious and beautiful name of Jesus Christ, who is worthy of our adoration and praise, which means just use his name. I prayed a psalm this week out loud and I was kind of surprised when it made me say, oh my God, because it said it. I had to read it out loud. And then the next thing it said wasn't a bad thing at all. It was, help! <laughs> Be amazed how your curses turn into praise when you start using the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus. Amen.